Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sassy Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Lucy Pinto. I'm excited to share with you my stories of everyday resilience and allow others to share theirs. My goal is to help people heal and find inner peace through our shared stories. This episode may include profanity or discuss topics that may be triggering for some. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Sassy Warrior Podcast. It's Lucy again. I am so excited today to introduce to you my meditation teacher, Matt Cardone. So welcome, Matt. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. I'm so happy to have you here. I would love for you to tell me a little bit about your journey to learning meditation. Sure. It was kind of a long road to get to meditation. To get there, I'd like to give you a little background on how that process kind of unfolded. I grew up in New Jersey. I played football and lacrosse and ended up getting a scholarship to play Division I lacrosse at University of Delaware. Throughout that process, I got injured a number of times and had to get my shoulder done a couple of times. And it was tough. It was one thing where I really had this strong identity built into sports and being an athlete and playing lacrosse. And then it had come to an end. I think that was challenging for me. Going through that adversity in college at a young age was a little bit difficult and graduated college. I got into medical device sales. I sold more specifically with scientific research instrumentation and I lived in Hoboken, New Jersey. It was that same mentality of wanting to be at the top and very competitive. For me, in the same token, because of all those injuries, I developed a really strong habit for painkillers. Even after the surgeries were over, oftentimes it had been dislocated. It was really, really difficult for me to get off of painkillers. With that turmoil, that mix, it was a burning of the candle at both ends. And it finally came to a pinnacle point in 2013, where I had gotten pulled over in a company vehicle. And mind you, at the time, I was ranked number one in the company. We had our national sales meeting scheduled two weeks out. And I actually got in a DUI with the company car. And it wasn't for alcohol, it was for being under too many of the painkillers during of the medication. I came down to Florida and I knew that I needed something because I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I had embarked on a 12-step fellowship, joined that community and felt that connection. And at that same time, started my own spiritual journey. And that was one of reading books and diving deeper into different concepts. And at that same time, once I had stabilized and I'd gotten my feet underneath me. I was working in the behavioral health field. I had started out for a small treatment center, maybe after a year of being in recovery and shortly thereafter got promoted. Basically what I did was utilize the same skills that made me successful in sports and in medical device sales and I implemented it into behavioral health. And during my training period for this new company I was working for as a national institute, we had seven facilities nationwide. And I was out in Santa Monica, California, and there was a, we had a, for lack of better term, a sales force. We had a sales division, and there was maybe 25 reps that were part of the company. When you have reps and you have company meetings and conference calls, you develop friendships. And there was one woman who became to be like a little bit of a work wife, one of my colleagues. And so she called me and she had said, hey, you're into that like hippie dippy meditation stuff, right? And I remember kind of laughing to myself. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm into that. And she said, well, there's this guy coming into town. 
We spent decades in India studying under this major guru. I'm supposed to be really good. You should go check them out. At the time, I tried apps like Headspace or Calm or some of the ones that were around back in 2014. I was a sporadic meditator. I was interested in diving deeper. I'd heard people had some great benefit from it. I thought, all right, let me go check it out. Being from New Jersey or the Northeast, I think I naturally have like a skeptical flavor about me. <laughs> there was maybe 30 or 40 people waiting in this. It was like a yoga room for this teacher to come. And we're waiting and we're waiting. And finally, about 10 minutes go by. And this yoga studio had floor to ceiling windows out into the sidewalk. And I remember catching a glimpse of this teacher. His name's Tom Knowles. And he had this long white beard and this flowing shirt and trendy jeans on to kind of compliment. And I remember as he was walking past me, I was just being so skeptical and running like algorithms on how this guy can't be the real deal, whatever it is. He sat down and just started talking very comfortably, very casually. He knew a great deal about meditation. And I never really heard someone speak so in-depthly about meditation before regarding science and psychology. And I thought that was fascinating. And that was kind of my first hook. And then there was a time where maybe 10 or 15 minutes had gone by and he told a joke. He just happened to be in mid-story and he told a joke. Not that he had it prepared, it just kind of came out. And for him, it was like really funny. He had like a good laugh at it. He chuckled <laughs> at it. And the rest of the people in attendance was just like blank face, like no humor. Like it just wasn't funny. I remember sitting there, I remember thinking like that just wasn't funny. Like a kind of a grandpa joke, maybe. He finished laughing. He looked back at us and just continued talking again. And I remember thinking, like, wow, like no F's given. Like that guy just literally was able to not care about what he had said or what the response was going to be. He just kept in his flow. And that was something where I was like, that right there. I remember I could put my finger on it. I was like, if I could just get some of that, I think that's what I've been missing. You know, because I always was so in my head growing up as a kid and in school and in sports and with girls and with everything, just overthinking and worrying about what I was going to say next or how it was going to be received. And I ended up signing up with Tom. I took his course at 7 a.m. That was prior to my training that started at 9. We finished around 8.30, 8.45. And then I got in a rental car and drove right over to the training. Within the first couple of days, it felt different than any other meditations I had done before. And I really noticed a big difference when I got back to Florida. The biggest difference was that I was now meditating every day instead of sporadically, maybe once or twice a month. And I was enjoying it. And I started to notice benefits from it almost immediately. And I kept doing it, kept doing it. And after about a year of meditating within my first year, I'd been dating this girl for maybe a year and a half, two years at the time. And I had found out that she would rather be dating someone else. We found out she was you know, cheating on me. I was like, all right, you know what? I need to get away. I'd like to dive deeper into what I'm doing. I want to learn more about it. I got online and looked for any retreats that were going through India. And there happened to be one that was leaving in two weeks. I emailed the teacher. She said a couple just backed out. The retreat was full, but you can have that last spot if you're really wanting to come. I snagged it. I bought a plane ticket. I got the travel visa to get in and out of there. And so I made all of that work really quickly. And I was excited. I knew that my relationship was behind me, kind of freed me up a little bit to focus on myself, hopped on a plane, 
in Newark. From Newark, it was transferring to Frankfurt, Germany, and then from Frankfurt to Chennai, India. We're on the tarmac in Newark, and there were some weather delays. Maybe 30 minutes we're waiting, waiting to hear from the pilot. They've already closed the door, so we can't get out of the plane. And he gets on. He says, it's going to be another hour delay. You hear everyone kind of moan and groan. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make this flight, this transfer from Frankfurt to Chennai. And the next one isn't until the next day. We finally take off. It was maybe an hour and 20 minutes after that. We take off and I'm following the flight tracker, like where we are in comparison to when we land and if I'm going to make that next flight or not. We land and I think I had like 17 minutes to get from the furthest gate possible in the airport to my gate. And so I finally got my checked bag and I got it on the rollers and I'm sprinting through like a tourist would be late for a flight, right? Excuse me, excuse me. I'm running through and I'm sweating and I finally get to my gate and I could see that flight attendant was walking from the door down that throughway towards the plane and I'm knocking on the glass saying like I'm on this flight. She caught me out of the corner of her eye and looked at me and I was, please, can you get me on? And she pointed at the door, the door had closed. And so that was it. And I kind of was like, oh, you know, now what? So I go to customer service and I'm talking with the customer service agent. He seemed like he had just had a long, a long day because he was not super willing to help. He said everything was booked and there's nothing I can get you on until the next day this flight takes out. And, you know, I talked to him for maybe 10 minutes, tried different angles of different possibilities. Once he said that there was nothing we could do, I knew I was in trouble because the crew that I was going there with was leaving from Chennai to Pondicherry that next morning, and I would have missed them. And it's a five-hour bus ride that they're taking. I think this other customer service agent saw me standing there kind of defeated. And she said, sir, would you come over here? She called me over to the computer and, and she said, let me just check on a few things for you. Where are you flying again? She got my destination. She got me on a flight from Mumbai to Chennai. So from Frankfurt to Mumbai and then to Chennai. And super grateful. She just went out of her way and it was like, oh, you know, this is meant to be. Like I'm back on track again. I think that flight flew out in the middle of the night. I got to Mumbai. There was a little bit of a layover. Then I was on my flight to Chennai. I landed early morning, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. in India that time. Everyone's getting their bags off the turnstile waiting for my bag to come out. Everyone's grabbing their bags. I had a book bag. I had a book in there. I had an extra pair of underwear and a toothbrush. That's all I brought in my backpack. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And there's like three bags left. And then this old lady grabs the last bag on there. And then there's nothing. And then the turnstile stops. No bag anywhere to be found. I go to their customer service and give us your phone number, or the name of the hotel. And We'll get in touch with you. And I said, well, I'm leaving. You know, I'm going to be traveling through South India for the next 14 days. He said, don't worry. All will work out. All is coming. Yeah. I thought, oh, God, right? Here it goes. <laughs> I took a taxi to the hotel where everyone was initially meeting up at. Finally, I got a little breakfast in. I met some people that were on the retreat. I go up into my room and connect to Wi-Fi. And I had actually gotten a message from a brother and a sponsorship family that my roommate had overdosed and died. It was within the last 48 hours. Immediately, with everything going on, it was just like all these emotions came rushing in and composed myself. I went down and asked if I could talk to my teacher for a couple minutes, let him know what was going on. And the question that he posed to me was, would you be running away from 
the feelings or the situation if you went back home right away or if you stayed here? He said that and that's for you to think about and answer. No pressure. I sat in my room and I thought about it. And, you know, coming here was something that seemed to have been divinely organized. It was like the universe working in my favor to kind of get me there. This external circumstance had occurred. Me going back and seeing all my buddies and consoling with them and regurgitating memories and being able to go to the funeral for me would have been much more consoling and nice would have been a nice feeling to have. And to be in India with a group of 12 people that I'd never met before in a different culture and having to deal with this on my own, although it would have been more challenging, I knew it was probably the route that I needed to take to really deal with that trauma. I stayed every day. I'd go down to a lobby of whatever place we were staying at and check with them, see where my luggage was. And every day they would say, sir, all is coming. All is coming. It's all coming. (laughs) (laughs) Every day it was all is coming. I remember getting frustrated with that super Western mentality. And I'd only been meditating about a year. And I just remember myself getting really agitated with that. By day 10, my luggage came. It finally caught up and I opened up my suitcase. And the only thing I looked at that I was really excited to have was more contact solution because I was using just this little travel one for so long, just trying to sparse it out. And I had packed like two weeks worth of clothes that I obviously didn't need. I ended up going to a local store called Fab India and bought all native Indian wear and just really got absorbed in that culture. It was beautiful. To be honest with you, when I got back, it wasn't like you go to India for two weeks and you come back spiritually enlightened. Like I was actually almost worse off than before I left. And all of those things had caught up to me, the breakup with my girlfriend and the losing of a really close friend. And it just took me time to integrate that. After about three or four months and felt a little bit better about everything, I got in touch with my teacher and he said, you know, Matt, you're going to end up being a teacher one day. And I remember thinking, I would love to learn more about it, but I'm making really good money right now. And I'm in the middle of a career and I'm looking like I could probably get promoted fairly soon. And I said, well, I'm not sure if that's the route I would like to take full time, but I want to learn more about it. I want to learn more about the studies. And he said, well, why don't we start you and see how it goes? And I think he knew all along that this was probably the path that I was going to take. And that began my, it was a little over two and a half years of training for Vedic meditation. And I made five more trips back to India and some of them longer residential stays. Towards the end, this was maybe my fifth trip. I was there for three months and we were in a secluded ashram, the foothills of the Himalayas, which is Northern India. The minimum amount of hours we're meditating a day was five. The maximum was 14. It was 14 hours a day for three weeks straight. And if we weren't meditating, we were translating Sanskrit or studying that Vedic wisdom. Really long days and really, really absorbed in it. And to be honest, you know, some of those days it felt like I was falling apart to pieces and putting the pieces back together again that very same day. But it certainly trained me for full time coaching in meditation. That was in 2017. And it was February 2017, came back to Florida. And I worked for a little bit at a behavioral health treatment center, and then went full time teaching meditation. There's some weeks where the days where I'm teaching courses have 12 hour days, I'm doing individual pujas, 12 students, 
some of those courses that I ran, especially early on, uh, it was 12-hour days. And then some weeks, obviously, that are not. What's great about it is this is something that is age-old. Vedic meditation is, scholars put it around five to 10,000 years old. And Vedic comes from that word Veda, meaning body of knowledge. And anytime there's an IC at the end of a word that's been translated from Sanskrit to English, it usually means of the. The technique that you and I practice is a meditation of the Veda. And Veda is where that body of knowledge is where yoga, meditation, Ayurveda, acupuncture, all of that comes from. I've been doing that full time ever since. Awesome. Incredible story. Thank you for sharing. I want to share a little bit about how Matt and I got connected because I find it so interesting how I just kind of stumble upon people or meet them in different places. I was about five or six months sober last year in 2020. As you heard in a previous podcast episode, I had decided to get sober for my mental health related to some trauma that I had experienced. I was like, you know what? Life isn't working for me the way that it's going. Let me try to get sober. I was sober for about five or six months, worked with a sober coach. And then I was kind of at a point where I was also in therapy. I was at a point where I was like, okay, I'm sober. I'm feeling pretty good about my decision. But like the anxiety is still like racing and out of control. And I think for the longest time, I thought that it was just part of my personality, like type A, Virgo, neurotic, like it's just part of who I am. It's just the way it's going to be. It doesn't matter how much sleep I get, how much therapy I get. I happened to be listening to a podcast. One of our dear friends, Scott Russell from The Grave Podcast, had Matt on and I was listening to it. I thought to myself, this was last year in 2020. And I was like, hmm, I'm like, this is really interesting. Meditation, meditation. And throughout my life, I've heard several things help with anxiety. I've heard meditation is great. I've heard limit your caffeine intake, exercise, like all these different things and journaling also. I had actually learned how to meditate with a different program a couple of years beforehand when I was married. And I noticed that it had an effect on me. I had a dog that was very sick. He was like 12 and a half going through heart failure and he passed away. And it's like, I handled the process like really calmly, like abnormally calmly. I'm like, this is really weird. What is going on with me? And I was like, it's meditation, it's meditation. But I didn't stick with it. I wasn't in the right place in my life to really dedicate myself to something like that. I wasn't dedicated to myself. I was more focused on my significant other. Here I am. I'm working on myself heavily last year in 2020. I'm sober. And I'm like, I really just want to take things to the next level. And I was talking to my therapist and I was telling her, I was like, you know, I'm sober now. And I thought my anxiety was going to get better. And she kind of pointed out to me, she's like, Lucy, you took away your crutch. Like your anxiety is not going to get better. Like that's not, you're going to have that jolty, overwhelming feeling for a while as you continue to process. But when I heard Matt on Scott's podcast and he was talking about meditating, it was kind of like this reminder of like, remember that thing that worked for you in the past and like maybe you couldn't keep up with it, but you know deep down inside that it's really, really good for you. And if only you could dedicate yourself and learn and have some accountability, like maybe you could actually do it. I want to say that I contacted Matt in August 2020. I was about six months sober then and we got on a call. I just kind of chatted with him and said, this is what's going on. And I was at a point in my life where I was literally like, I don't know if I'm going to live a long life if I don't get some help with this anxiety. Like I was at a point where I would stare out the window looking at this lake and I would just be like, 
if I have to live like this, I don't know if something's going to end up happening to me because I'm going to be drinking or maybe even drugging or like what source am I going to try to attach on to to deal with my anxiety that could possibly take my life or have myself take my own life. And I really just wanted some relief. Matt and I talked and I was like, you know what? I just want to go full force in this. I want to try it, see what happens. And we just started working together and we started meeting once a week. And I have to say that the process was not easy. And I don't know if I expected it to be easy, but being somebody with anxiety, something that I've seen with a lot of people that experience anxiety and they try meditation, part of anxiety is it's really hard to sit down and sit still. Like that's literally doing the thing against your anxiety. You're sitting there and you're like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'd rather be watching TV or zoning out or, you know, working out or doing something else. But I knew deep down inside that if I could just commit myself for a period of time, if I could just see a sense of relief, that I knew that I was doing the right thing for myself. I continued and like little by little, I started seeing changes. I experienced some connection to my trauma. And Matt really was great in helping me through the process and guiding me through the thoughts and the feelings that were coming up and letting me know that what I was doing was correct, that I should just keep on going and assisting me through the process. I have to say that it wasn't about until five months in to meditating twice a day for 20 minutes all of a sudden, that feeling of, oh, I got to go meditate right now. Like I'd go and walk Louie and I'd come inside and be like, oh, I got to meditate. Like, you know, it's good for you, but man, I don't want to do it. I would sit down and I'd meditate. And right around the five month mark, it was like, oh, I get to go inside and meditate now. Like I get to go inside and meditate. All of a sudden I was excited about it. And now it's like this like daily prescription, like my own medication that I take for anxiety, where it's like the sense of relief and something that I look forward to. But it's funny, even before this call, I meditated, I noticed for the first time that I meditate for 20 minutes, it was about 10 minutes in and I kind of looked down at the clock and I thought to myself, oh, thank goodness I have 10 more minutes. And I have to say, I've never had that feeling before, but I was just so deep in it and I was so relaxed and feeling all the goodness and all the relief. It was like, oh yes, 10 more minutes. And then it happened to be five minutes later, checked again oh, thank God, five more minutes is so freaking great. And it's completely changed my life in so many amazing ways. I've had friends that have said to me, I see that you look so much happier, you're smiling, you're wearing less makeup. And I thought to myself, like, I mean, I'm not wearing less makeup right at this moment, but we met for dinner and I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't really like pile on that blush. I didn't feel like I had to prove myself. I felt more comfortable in my skin. And even my mother coming to me and saying, with tears in her eyes, like Lucy, I've seen all the work that you've done and I see all the progress and it's absolutely incredible. And it's helped me with dealing with being an emotional eater, with addiction, with my daily routines. Like when I first started working with Matt, I was going to bed at like six or seven o'clock at night and I would curl into bed and I would turn on the TV and I'd kind of like just zone out and tell myself like somebody just make it stop. Like I just want to go to sleep. I just want to turn all the thoughts off. I just can't handle life. Throughout the process of working with Matt and meditating, we started to talk about the television and how like it probably wasn't the healthiest thing for me. And I got to the point where I was like, you know, like let me move the television downstairs into the other room. And 
then all of a sudden I would start having better habits and getting comfortable with sitting downstairs until eight or nine o'clock and then going upstairs and just trying to slowly but surely change my habits into a healthier pattern. I have a question for you. Go ahead. Five months seems like a long time for a lot of people. Like five months, it's going to take and then I'll get it. But when you think back, if you could remember, you know, from day one till month five, why was it that you kept going month after month after month? What do you think it was? Was there something that you had noticed in everyday life? Was it accountability? Was it just putting your work ethic into it? Was it effortful? What was it that made you keep going? Honestly, I was at a point in my life where I felt like it was life or death. I felt like, okay, I already stopped drinking. I was getting some relief of that. Like, I was literally will, it's almost as if somebody told me like, Lucy, if you don't get in control of this anxiety, like it's going to take your life. Either you're going to drink yourself into death, either you're going to take your own life. You're not going to live a long life unless you start to really focus on yourself and working through the anxiety and trying to alleviate it because that pressure on my body and my mind was just so bad that I was kind of like weight loss, like willing to do anything to feel better and so committed to that. I was just so sick and tired of feeling the pain of the anxiety and the stress of it that I was committed. And I did start to see little changes. I would start to notice like, oh, I'm not quite as anxious at night or I'm waking up and I'm not as anxious because when we started working together, I was waking up with heavy anxiety and I was going to bed with heavy anxiety. And as I started to see that, like, oh, I'm waking up and like, I'm starting to feel more positive and I don't feel overwhelmed. And like, huh, this is kind of nice. Like maybe I should keep on meditating. Kind of like yesterday. Yesterday afternoon, I take pride in meditating twice a day for 20 minutes. Yesterday afternoon, I did not get my meditation in. And I'm sharing this because life is not perfect. It happens. But you kind of have this feeling like you're just like the time is rolling by and you know, it's just like a meditation and it didn't happen. And I have to say, I found myself last night a little bit more jittery and overwhelmed than I usually do because I was just kind of winding down for the night and I'm like, gosh, why am I so anxious? Like, why do I feel so? And I'm like, well, you didn't meditate, Lucy. Like, you know, like you're supposed to meditate twice a day. (laughs) I ended up doing something a little bit different, something to relax myself. But I've really come to see that that twice a day, every day is kind of flows like clockwork, but it's also so important and for my mental health to alleviate all that stress. Yeah. And one thing that's really important to keep in mind, especially with learning meditation and practicing daily is when you have a program, the intention is to meditate twice daily. Now life comes up and there's going to be times where you can't. I always recommend that if that ever does happen, to not beat yourself up over it. The one thing to keep in mind is like, all right, tomorrow, I'm definitely scheduling that second meditation out. So I don't miss it a second time. Because you don't want to miss it twice in a row. Once that habit starts forming, right, that that boulder is going to start gaining downhill speed. Missing a meditation, oftentimes early on in someone's meditating career, would be filled with like shame or regret or guilt. And it's really, it's like you get used to eating two healthy meals twice a day. Let's say you're eating a lunch and a dinner. 
you just were working or tied up somewhere and you didn't get that second meal in, you're going to probably be ready for your next meal. You're going to be hungry when night rolls around, but it's not like game over. It's not like it's all over. You just get back on track and back on schedule that next day. I agree a hundred percent. It's kind of like when you're trying to eat healthy and then eat something bad, it's like, well, just make sure that you continue to eat healthy. And if you have something bad, you know, get back on track and it's, Kind of similar, I guess you could say. Absolutely. And same with exercise. It's really the same with everything. A lot of people have this connotation that meditation is just something that you're kind of supposed to be able to figure out on your own. And it's really not. It's the same thing as like getting a nutritionist or reading up on the latest research on what foods you should be eating based on your body type or for physical fitness. There's different workout routines for different people. And some people need to do more cardio or some strength training or some hit training. To be trained properly in any of those disciplines takes a coach to show you how to do it. It's hard to just make up your own hit training routine or to do Orange Theory without ever taking the class before. The more drastic example I give quite a bit is that of swimming. If you don't know how to swim, to jump in the water and try and figure it out is challenging and difficult and scary. And you know, if you make it over to the side of the pool, you don't really want to try that again. Maybe you think swimming isn't for you. But if you got a swim instructor and they showed you how to float and blow bubbles and front stroke, backstroke, you learn to be comfortable and you learn the technique, then you could swim anywhere and do it for the rest of your life. And that's kind of my approach on how I coach meditation is with that same principle of self-sufficiency, of training someone to be able to do it have their program that they can do twice a day, every day for the rest of their life. And I'm just there to support them, root them on from the sidelines and encourage them to keep going. I have to say that that was one of the big awakenings for me in this process of forming the habit of meditating twice a day is that I realized that I really benefited from having a routine. And as somebody that's an entrepreneur that works from home and has anxiety, I was like, whoa, I'm onto something. Just seeing that was part of the process of sticking with it is that if I needed to make sure I even have it on my phone, I think at three o'clock as a reminder, like meditate, just because I'm afraid that I'm going to get caught up in my day and I'm going to forget about it. But realizing that I benefit from routine made me realize that I wanted to keep meditating as well. The more I do this, the more I keep up with it. Like it's really working for me. And I don't want to go back to old Lucy. <laughs> I don't want to go back to like frazzled, like, overwhelmed, I can't do life, Lucy. But it's also, I've noticed in the last week, given me a state of calmness that I didn't think was possible. And the calmness is almost addicting to me. Like I find myself like when I start to get stressed or overwhelmed or anxious, I'm like, no, I want to protect myself more and my mental health more, my sanity like, okay, you have too many things going on. Like I had a meeting today at 12. I was like, you know, what? my day's packed. Like I need to cancel that meeting. I need to set some boundaries and protect my mental health and my peace. And part of that has been learned through meditation. Matt, a lot of people, when they hear about meditation, the immediate thing that they think of is all the apps out there that they can use, different things that they've seen on television or through ads on Instagram or Facebook. Can you kind of explain the different types of meditation and how it compares to Vedic meditation? Sure. Yeah. I started about 18 months ago working with a large majority of professional athletes and 
particularly the NBA and the MLB. And what's interesting, when I sit down with a large majority of them, the answer I get a lot of the time is, yo, bro, like long distance running is already my meditation or like open water swimming is already my meditation, man. I'm just like in that zone. And what I always like to really set the precedent with is first my definition. My definition of meditation is a state of deep, profound healing rest, right? So if you're open water swimming or long distance running, you're certainly not falling into that category. What's happening when you're running or swimming or active for quite some time is that you're overstimulating the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. That's our fight or flight response or freeze. You're releasing chemistry in the brain that's usually synonymous with adrenaline or cortisol. And that oftentimes can hone out any of the thoughts that you may have on a normal daily basis because your body thinks that you're in a survival situation. So it really kind of blurs all of that out and gives you laser focus on exactly what you're doing at that time. However, that's not synonymous with meditation because there's actually no rest occurring and there's no release from the nervous system. I always say that's like uh, calling carbs your protein for an athlete. It's like, ah, so let's make meditation your meditation. Now that we kind of have that cleared up, meditation gets broken down into three main subcategories. The first one is contemplative meditation. So that's probably one of the most widespread known meditations or types of meditations in the West. And that would be examples of apps like Headspace, Calm, Insight Timer, YouTube videos with guided visualization. If you went to a meditation center or yoga studio, oftentimes at the end of a yoga practice, they'll lay you on your back and guide you through an experience where you have your eyes closed and you're visualizing yourself in an open field and you can feel the sun on your face and smell the flowers and hear the birds. And what you're doing is essentially delineating information via the five senses and inserting thoughts into the mind that are more charming than whatever's currently going on. The human mind has between 50 and 70,000 thoughts every single day. And studies show that 90% of those thoughts are recurring or repetitive thoughts that we think about or ruminate on over and over again. When you have an experience where you're delineating information, it helps you be more present. And then you're inserting thoughts into the mind that could be relaxing, it can be an enjoyable experience. The only challenge I find with that, and I find most people will go through a lot of trial and error through the apps before they find me because there's a ton of free apps out there. And my first question when I find out that they're doing those is, how long did you do it for? And then the second is, well, why'd you stop? And if the app wasn't open or they didn't feel like clicking on it, they weren't meditating. So you weren't ever really learning how to do it. You were kind of just getting a nice experience with some shallow levels of relaxation. I say that the biggest challenge with that is the inability to replicate itself sufficiently on your own, to be able to do it with ease and to do it correctly and consistently over periods of time. The second category of meditation is concentrative. Those types of techniques were ones that were originally designed for monks, people that meditate 10 to 15 hours a day. What we've done in the West is what I call like the mic yogification of meditation. We've watered it down or delineated it to make it more accessible to the average Westerner, people like you and I. 
And the generic prescription is to sit on the ground, legs either in lotus or cross-legged, fancy finger positions on your knees, back fully erect to do that for maybe 10 or 15 minutes. Now, all meditations work for how they're designed. But if you're not doing it for the duration of how long it was designed, then you're not getting the full return on your investment. The ROI on 10 to 15 minutes when it's designed to be done 10 to 15 hours is really, really small, right? It's like less than 1%. And that's why most people don't continue to meditate in that way either. It'll be very sporadic. And I kind of had that same experience of that as well early in my career. What I teach and what we both practice is called Vedic meditation. In Vedic meditation, we use a mantra. And mantra is, is simply a sound. For lack of a better term, it's sound technology. And it translates from Sanskrit to English as man, which is mind, tra, which is vehicle. So it's a mind vehicle or orientating device that brings the mind from that busy surface, the 50 to 70,000 thoughts that we're having every day, down to more subtle layers of thinking. And it works on the principle of traction. Right. As humans, the human mind is always either being attracted to something, a mate that we would prefer to be with, a book that we'd like to read, a type of food we'd want to eat, or distracted. Right. I don't like men or women with these type of qualities as my partner. And I don't enjoy that type of food. I don't want to go to that restaurant. I would never see a scary movie. So we're not going to see that distracted. But either way, it's traction. So that same principle has been embedded into this technique thousands of years ago. And the mind finds that sound, the mantra, to be more charming, more attractive than it does the thousands of thoughts that we're having. And the only job of the mantra is to go from gross level, right, all of those thoughts, down to more subtle layers of thinking. As you start to allow the mind to settle, it follows the mantra down to more subtle layers. And these mantras are designed to self-refine but gets softer, gets quieter, it gets fainter. And then eventually it just disappears. And it'll often leave you in a state of no thought, no mantra. But it's just pure awareness without the thinking mind. In terms of neurochemistry, there's a slew of things that are happening. But the 101 version of that is we're allowing our corpus callosum to think it. And so that's what actually carries communication between the left and right hemisphere of the brain. And so we're activating both of those centers. If you're left or right brain dominant, you're allowing the other one to be flooded with activity. In the same token, there's also a unique effect happening to the body. It's called a psychosomatic effect. So as is the mind, so is the body. Think about a job interview, a first date, or athletes before they get out onto the field when they're in the locker room. Oftentimes, cracking of knuckles, biting of fingernails, tapping of the foot incessantly, busy mind, busy body, anxious mind, anxious body. The body's a direct printout of the mind. In meditation, it's the same but opposite. You quiet the mind, now the body can fully de-excite and quiet down. And the great thing about de-exciting the body to this degree is that you can finally obtain maximum amounts of rest. Rest is the antidote to stress. When we think about stress, the definition of it from a physiological standpoint is an abnormality at the structural or material level. So it's not an abstract construct in your mind where it's just like this cloud following you around. It's actually data that the body stores gets printed out and the mind is recognizing this from the body. 
for thousands of years, it was used to help us evolve and to survive situations in which we were being chased by predators. These days, we have the same computer functioning with the body. However, we don't have any natural predators. We recreate that with the system that we have. When you're resting, you're allowing that release to occur. That stress is stored in the body. It gets stored up almost like a knot. When it does get released, it's causing that activity to occur. Anytime there's movement, there's activity. That brings the body back up to the more active levels from being really de-excited to now excited, active. Those are still connected, the body and the mind. Now the mind's getting drawn up to the surface, to the more active levels of thinking. And as it is, it's noticing the stresses that are being released and simply labels them as thought. Contrary to everything you've heard in meditation, thoughts are actually good because they're evidence of stress being released from the body. What you do with those thoughts is what I teach on the course. And I find that that's what often keeps people away from meditating is they think that all those thoughts, like I just, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't stop thinking. I even talked to somebody the other day when I was mentioning that I meditate. And she said, I have one of those apps, but I just keep on thinking, the thoughts keep coming. I'm like, that's okay, <laughs> that's okay, that's good, that's good. Yeah. That's like a common misconception. Certainly one of the biggest myths the top two that I get a lot are, I don't have the time, don't have the time to meditate. Because I've gotten that so many times, dozens and dozens of times, I actually factored in how long it would meditate in our technique to do it twice a day for 20 minutes. And it's less than 3% of your entire day. Less than 3% of your entire day. Is it worth it to do it every day based on the benefits you personally have gotten, Lucy? Absolutely. Right. <laughs> Completely it's such my a life. small amount of time that you're giving to yield such fruits over the long term. The second is, yeah, there's just no way I could stop my mind from thinking. I've tried blocking it out. I tried watching it go by like clouds. I definitely would be a good meditator. And what I say is, I actually enjoy teaching people that feel like they have a lot of thoughts or they struggle with ADD or ADHD because. The more thoughts you're having in this technique, the better. Literally, if you can think, you can meditate in this way. And I have to say that I believe in meditating and doing this work so much that people that I've talked to that I've said, like, you have to take Matt's course, got to reach out to him. You have to try this. I will even tell them, like, I promise you, whatever you're struggling with, like, it will get better. If you're willing to do the work, commit yourself twice a day and continue to meditate, your life will get better because I'm evidence of that. I never thought I could live in a state of like, oh yeah, I got this, I'm fine. I was constantly like a rabbit chasing after something. Like I just couldn't sit still. Yeah, and I think that promise is pretty solid. And I only always speak from my experiences as well. Same thing. But I'm still looking for the one person that I've taught to do it, has done it, and it hasn't worked. It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> it's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. If it's not working, it's probably because they're not doing it. <laughs> well, just like anything else, right? Yeah. You're not eating in accordance to how you know that would be good for your body or healthy foods, or you have a membership to the gym, but you don't go. You can't blame the gym for no result. You didn't go. Very true. Very true. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today and talking to me and working with me. I greatly appreciate it. You are one of my favorite people in my life. So thank you. Thank you. 
How can people get in touch with you? What's your website, your Instagram? How can they possibly work with you? I know you do a free consultation call. Like, tell us all about that. Sure. My social media on Facebook and Instagram is at Matt Cardone Meditation. I also have a new website that's being launched. It should be done within the next 48 hours, mattcardonemeditation.com. If you're interested, go to that website. There's going to be a walkthrough on how to get in touch with me. But generally, the way that it works is if you are interested and something's resonating with you about learning this type of meditation, I'll hop on a discovery call with you. It's usually about 15, 20 minutes. Just learn a little bit about what's going on. I tell you about the technique. I answer any questions. And if it's a good fit for both of us, usually what we'll do is one of two things. I have in-person courses that I teach here in Palm Beach Gardens literally out of my house. This is something that I've been doing since the beginning, since I've been teaching full-time. I started only teaching out of my house in person. And once I started gaining traction, I was teaching in other areas like down in Miami and then working with bigger companies. And one thing that is one of my favorite things to do is to teach out of my house and bring it back to the way that I've always taught it. There's just something that you can't really replicate and that's certainly one of them. And then second to that is if you're not local, I also teach virtually. If you're in a different state or in a different county, unable to travel, you'll still get all of the same teachings, all of the methodology, all of the mechanics, and learn the technique just the same. It will just be through a virtual room. Yep. The website, social, you reach out to me and I'd be happy to hop on a call with anybody. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive new episodes when they are released. If you are enjoying this podcast so far, please take a moment to leave us a review. This is one of the major ways Apple ranks their podcasts, and it really only takes just a few seconds. Thank you for joining me, Lucy Pinto, in this episode of the Sassy Warrior Podcast, Stories of Everyday Resilience. See you next time.